Welcome to MED, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. This is the first in a two-part episode series on transgender health. I was fortunate to have a really interesting conversation with Dr. Adam Dell, a pediatrician who works in adolescent medicine at the University of Utah Adolescent Medicine Clinic with GEMS, Gender Management and Support. This is a comprehensive clinic for transgender, non-binary, intersex, and gender diverse youth, as well as for youth questioning their gender. This clinic provides care for their patients' physical, mental, and emotional health. Dr. Dell gives a great overview of the state of current transgender medicine, including various treatment options, as well as information that every clinician should know when caring for transgender patients. Dr. Dell completed his medical school training at the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine and his pediatric residency training at the University of Utah. Also taking part in this conversation is Dr. Lucy. She has a child who identifies as transgender and she discusses her personal experience of being a patient of a transgender youth while also being a pediatrician. We are not using her last name today because her child is a minor and is thus unable to give consent to the use of her name in a public sphere. Please enjoy these episodes that provide timely and important information regarding transgender health that are applicable to clinicians across specialties. So before I get into questions, I did want to go over some terms because I feel like um, making sure everyone's on the same page with terms is important. Um, so first of all, and these are all from um, GLAD, G-L-A-A-D, which is a media organization that makes sure that people basically speak of um, LGBTQIA things using the right terminology. So sexual orientation, the scientifically accurate term for an individual's enduring physical, romantic, and or emotional attraction to members of the same and or opposite sex, including lesbian, gay, bisexual, and heterosexual or straight orientations. Avoid the offensive term sexual preference, which is used to suggest that being gay, lesbian, or bisexual is voluntary and therefore curable. And people do not need to have had specific sexual experiences to know their own sexual orientation. In fact, they need not have had any sexual experience at all, which is important in the pediatric population. So gay and adjective used to describe people who are attracted to members of the same sex. Lesbian is usually referring to a woman. Um, Bisexual is someone who forms these attractions to those of the same gender or to those of other genders. Um, And then T, the transgender, transsexual, we'll talk about that a little later. And then Q is for queer, an adjective used by some people, particularly younger people whose sexual orientation is not exclusively heterosexual, typically for those who identify as queer, terms lesbian, gay, and bisexual are perceived to be too limiting and or fraught with cultural connotations they feel don't apply to them. Uh, Once considered a pejorative term, queer has been reclaimed by some LGBT people to describe themselves. However, it is not a universally accepted term even within the LGBT community. When Q is seen at the end of LGBT, it typically typically means queer and less often questioning. Um, And then intersex is an umbrella term describing people born with reproductive or sexual anatomy and or chromosome pattern that can't be classified as typically male or female. These variations are also sometimes referred to as differences of sexual development and avoid obviously the outdated and derogatory term hermaphrodite. And then asexual is an adjective used to describe people who do not experience sexual attraction. 
person can also be aromantic, meaning they do not experience romantic attraction. And then heterosexual, an adjective used to describe people um, with attraction to people of the opposite sex, also known as straight. And then I did not know this, but homosexual is actually considered an offensive term to avoid. Um, in this outdated clinical term considered derogatory and offensive, the Associated Press, New York Times, and Washington Post re, uh, restricts usage of this term. And then just as a reminder, marriage, um, the U.S. Supreme Court said that every American has the constitutional right to marry the person they love in June 2015, so five and a half years ago. And then the definition that I have, Adam um, and Lucy, you can tell me if you think there's a better definition for transgender people is transgender people have a gender identity or gender expression that differs from the sex they're assigned at birth. Some transgender people who desire medical assistance to transition from one sex to another identify as transsexual. Transgender, often shortened as trans, is also an umbrella term. In addition to including people whose gender identity is the opposite of their assigned sex, trans men and trans women, it may also include people who are non-binary or genderqueer. Other definitions of transgender also include people who belong to a third gender or else conceptualize transgender people as a third gender. And the term transgender may be defined very broadly to include cross-dressers. Does that sound accurate to you guys? Well, I think what's very interesting is this, this is a language that, that continues to evolve. And um, what I'm seeing used a little bit more are terms like gender diverse individuals or gender expansive individuals. I think when we use the term transgender, um, you know, that's kind of a chemistry term, um, you know, cis versus trans molecular structures going from one structure to the other. It kind of, um, when we say trans, a lot of people get this conception that it means, you know, transitioning from one gender to the other. Um, gender diverse and gender expansive really is more inclusive for those gender non-binary individuals or agender individuals as well. And I think it's, um, you know, appreciated by a, a lot more individuals now. And how would you define those terms for people who haven't heard them before? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, off the top of my head, a, a gender diverse individual is a person in whom their gender identity um, differs from that assigned or designated at birth, um, whether it is on the gender binary scale, um, you know, for, one end being male, the other end being female, we certainly recognize that people identify in between as well. And those people deserve to be recognized as well. Um, so, um, you know, I think these labels and putting people in boxes and ways can be helpful for people trying to get a good understanding. Um, I prefer personally to use more inclusive language like gender diverse. I've heard the term recently that I actually really like uh, just gender creative um, for kids who are also exploring their gender and so may kind of move more fluidly from one to the other. You know, it might become a little bit more set as they're older, it might not, but they're in an exploration phase. Um, and then the other thing I think people don't realize is that gender identity is very different than gender expression. And so someone can express themselves in a more masculine way, but feel more feminine or vice versa or any combination of the above. And I think um, 
that causes some confusion for parents of younger kids who do express themselves differently than what gender they say they are. That's a good point. And one other thing to point out just in terms of uh, a medical view is if you see in you know, a note that says transgender male, that that means someone who was born, who got the sexual um, label of being female and is sees themselves as male. I think sometimes people don't know what the male refers to, if it's what they were born as or what they're transitioning or how they see themselves. So, and then I also learned that the term transgendered, like in the past tense or like this person is transgendered is not a phrase you're supposed to use. Do you guys want to describe why that is? I think it's kind of can be recognized a little bit as derogatory sometimes. Um, you know, it kind of takes away from, you know, the human side of the person's identity in a way. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely see transgendered falling out of practice as well. Um, but, you know, I think what's most important is, you know, there these languages, these definitions are going to exist and they're going to change. It's definitely dynamic. I think what's most important is how the person chooses to identify themselves as and recognizing that, um, you know, there are a lot of gender diverse individuals who say they're a trans man and, you know, it's important you ask what that means to them. Um, they might describe their sexual orientation or their sexual identity in non-conventional ways, which might be foreign to you. Um, I hear terms like demi-romantic, for example, and I have to ask my patients, what does that mean to them? Because it might mean something different to them compared to another person. Um, so it is, it's completely appropriate to, you know, ask exactly, um, you know, what that means to them. In fact, I think that's kind of part of the process in getting to know your patient better. I think those are really good points. And then we're lucky at the U where they've, I think it's only in the last year, they've allowed us to put the patient's um, preferred name and pronouns at the top of the chart. Um, I think that's really important to patients. And then as a physician that you're caring for them in an appropriate way that they expect, it's kind of sad. It just took us till about a year ago, but I'm not sure how, if that's across a lot of electronic medical records or just Epic, which is the one that we use. Yeah, it's challenging. Um, you know, Icentra still um, through Intermountain. Um, it's getting a little bit better um, at, at doing that. Epic has been very nice because it allows us to do a little bit more than that and define a person's sexual identity. It allows us to um, designate, you know, what a person's organ inventory is. That's especially important in primary care when it comes to screening for things like cervical or breast cancer. So, you know, those opportunities certainly exist within our electronic medical record systems. And for our diverse populations, we should become accustomed to using those systems. And I caution individuals also by using the term preferred name and preferred pronoun. I think that's also following out of practice. Again, when we use the term preference, like you were saying, Carrie, it kind of, you know, kind of makes it seem like this is their choice rather than this is who they are as a person. Um, so. Yeah, yeah I centrist 
Uh, the other, I think Epic's way ahead. I centrally struggled with a couple of patients I've taken care of where we, there's a, there's an area to put in a nickname. And so sometimes in the nickname section, we'll put he slash him, but it doesn't, no one looks there. I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm hoping the other EMRs catch up. I did not know that about preferred, but that completely makes sense. It's interesting. So at the people uh, bottom, a lot of people's emails will say like preferred pronoun, I guess it, yeah. just, you should get rid of the preferred because it's just, yeah, you know, and this is, your name. you know, something that's evolved over the past year. So like I said, this is always a dynamic process. And I think as providers, it's okay to recognize you will make mistakes um, and your patients will probably correct you. And that's okay. Be appreciative of that. Um, you're being educated on how to make individuals feel more comfortable and, um, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good patient provider relationship. I have a kind of stupid question. I never really understand why T is in like LGBT because it's refers to gender identity and the rest are sexual orientation. Yeah. Do you think it's just like a, because it's, you know, a community that's underserved in a similar way or why do you think that is? I think so. I think a lot of historic representation of gender diverse individuals and sexually diverse individuals, um, you know, they kind of got lumped together under that umbrella term. Um, and in ways it, it's been beneficial in ways it's kind of been detrimental. And the benefit is that it, the, the community recognize that, you know, everyone under that umbrella is underrepresented in a way and we try to be supportive for everyone under that umbrella. But, you know, when it comes to initiatives and education and, um, you know, I, I often say it's very hard for me to give a lecture on L LGBTQ um, anything because every one of those letters means something. It represents a person, um, a group of underrepresented individuals whose stories are different than the other letter. And, um, you know, when we do this blanket umbrella term, we, we, we really take away from a lot of those experiences. I could spend three days talking about the ins and outs of transgender affirming healthcare. It's very different than that of talking about the needs of gays, lesbians, and bisexual individuals. From an advocacy standpoint, um, I, I think those are really good points, Adam. I think from an advocacy standpoint, it's almost, maybe that's kind of one of the reasons they're lumped together because then you have a larger weight of advocacy behind it so that I know like Equality Utah is doing a lot of work for you know, all the letters of the spectrum, um, but that you know some of the issues coming up for uh, the T group are you know, years behind some of the issues coming up for some of the other groups. So there are different processes in their acceptance in our general society and the laws that are coming out against them. So even there's, there's nuanced difference in terms uh, from a governmental regulation standpoint and acceptance standpoint, but, you know, it's nice to have kind of a full support of a community. Right. Um, on that note, Lucy, do you mind telling us about your family story a bit? Um, sure. So my youngest daughter is transgender, at least is female on her gender journey. She's five years old. And um, ooh, I mean, she has been telling us she was a girl since pretty much she could talk. Um, and so it's been really 
educational for me, eye-opening for me to watch her along this journey and sort of see as both she is able to express her feelings more, but also develop language to tell us more. Because I think it's hard with younger kids who don't have the language capacity yet, but who have those feelings and know who they are for them to express it. She was slightly language delayed due to some other medical issues. And so I think um, dealing with that at the same time, we were trying to figure out what she was trying to tell us. At, at some point it all just clicked and we realized like uh, this, this is who she is. This is what she's been telling us. And we've been trying to support her ever since. Um, and she's just blossomed and is really happy with who she is right now. And what about your greater family's acceptance of this? How has that been? Um, my immediate family, so being like grandparents, aunts, my, my siblings, my husband's siblings um, have been fantastic. And we live in a very supportive community, luckily, a very supportive street, very supportive school structure. So everything has been, everyone has been fantastic. Um, our extended family, um, that's uh, sort of a work in process. Um, we sent letters out kind of this winter telling everyone what to expect. It's been challenging because of the pandemic, because we haven't seen anyone for a year and a half. And so uh, that's been amazing because it's given our family some time to grow and, and let her be who she is in this kind of protected cocoon almost. But like, we have big family events coming up this summer that are going to resume. And it's going to be very different for people seeing that I had a what seemed like my son earlier, but now um, we realize she's my daughter. And so we wanted to kind of give them a heads up. We've had some negative reactions, but nothing super extreme. Um, and we're hoping that everyone can work through it as they meet her and get to know her story. So yeah. Has she changed her name? No. Um, <laughs> when she was younger, uh, her, she didn't, she kept telling us her name was not a princess name. And we didn't, we thought it was just because she liked princesses. So we found some, uh, it, it is a mostly gender neutral name, but not necessarily. So we found some strong female characters with that name. She seemed to like it. We've asked her occasionally if she wants to change it. But I think ever since seeing that there are some women out there with that name, she seems happy, but she's only five. I don't know where that will go in the next few years, I think we will readdress it before she starts kindergarten just to kind of see where she is and touch base because it'd be much easier to start a school system with one name rather than change it partway through. But I, I don't know where that will end up. Yeah. And we had talked before this about you, you know, talking about gender being on a spectrum and her gender journey. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you see that? Yeah. I mean, you know, initially, you know, she, she never said, I am a boy, you know, I am, uh, or any words like that. She, but she would initially say, I'm a boy slash girl. That's how she described herself. And we, uh, she would say, I have one girl eye and one boy eye, which I just kind of found very interesting. She'd tell us what she saw out of the girl eye and what she saw out of the boy eye. Um, but then as uh, months passed, it really, really switched to just, I am a girl. And that's what I want to be called. Um, and she asked us to say she and her when she was just, no, she, she four? Yeah, she was just barely four. Um, and so we made the change there. So I think, you know, since she's so young, I think this is, you know, I just am curious to see where she goes. This is who she is right now. 
I don't know who, she, you know, what she will feel in a few years. She's on this kind of journey of self-discovery and uh, we will just kind of support her along the way. And this is a question for either of you. What do you say to people who say, you know, this is temporary. They're going to change their mind for kids. They don't know who they are yet. That sort of thing. I don't know if that's part of the pushback you've gotten from extended family members or, I mean, I get that pushback as a pediatrician from some parents of trans youth and it's, it's challenging. Well, the, you, Adam, you can probably speak to this better than my N of one, my main experience from my kid, but the, um, the, the terms they use are consistent, insistent, and persistent. So they are consistent in what they say. They are persistent. They really hold tight to that and they are insistent. So if they meet those criteria, that's kind of takes it from temporary to a more permanent state of being. Kids do try on different hats, but usually it's like, oh, I want to wear a princess dress to play house. But this is a core part of who she is. And she was, I mean, she's been saying this is who she is for three years now. Um, and it wasn't just princess dresses. It was, you know, girls bathing suits, hair, jewelry, shoes. It was every facet of her being that she wanted to be female. And she was female, which is very different, I think, than, you know, I, the, I, the, those arguments I really don't like when they're like, well, my kid wants to be a cat or my kid wants to be a fireman. That's very different because they play that for an hour. Um, and that's make-believe and that's part of children's imagination and learning through playing. But this is something that persists. Right. It's actually a developmental milestone. We recognize that as pediatricians to be able to say if you are a boy or a girl around the age of four. Um, you're absolutely right. We look for that persistence, consistence, and insistence to, you know, help get an understanding of where children will be two years down the road, three years down the road, five years down the road. Um, and I think it's important for families to understand that we can't necessarily predict either way. Um, you know, the best thing you can do is really be supportive and help your child figure out who they are and, you know, avoid being detrimentally reparative um, in ways, um, you know, help them through that gender journey. And, you know, in the setting of persistent gender incongruence, observing to see if that evolves into dysphoria um, which is, you know, a diagnosed, diagnostic term we tend to use. And um, if we observe dysphoria develop, that's when we as medical providers can, you know, intervene to help lessen to that dysphoria and help individuals feel as authentic and comfortable with themselves as possible. Yeah, I, I will admit as a parent, that's one of the hardest, been the hardest things for me is dealing with kind of the uncertain path that it may take. I think I've been trained to kind of look for an answer, follow, a, you know, to do a lab, find what the, the white count is. And I, I kind of want to know. Um, and so I really had to tamp down that side of me and just go along for the, the ride as opposed to saying, okay, well, this is what I think she's doing now. This is what I think five years from now it will be. And it, that's been hard for me. Um, and I've really had to work on that. And just kind of accept that I don't know the answers, but that's part of being a parent is you actually think you know what your kid wants to do or think you have some control in their life and you have like really none. So. You have none. <laughs> <laughs> As I have found, yeah. Um, Adam, do you wanna to speak to what your clinic has available in terms of treatment? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it is, um, you know, any age group, we're happy to meet with families, whether your child is four or five years old, or whether your child is 16 or 17 years old, our job is to meet with families um, and support not only the patient, but also support um, parents and guardians as well, because this is a process for everyone. Um, you know, we provide support for individuals who are starting to experience dysphoria, whether that's happening at the time of puberty or after puberty. Um, we can assist with um, medical interventions to prevent any progression of unwanted puberty um, through use of puberty blocking medicines. Um, for individuals who's who want to explore um, gender affirming hormones. We provide support um, by prescribing those types of medications when it's appropriate. Um, we follow a very shared medical decision model in that um, you know, we, we want the patient to be on board. We want the parents and support to be on board. We want providers to be on board through this process because we feel that ultimately is what is going to promote the best outcomes for individuals and for individuals who are older and farther along on their gender journey, if they are exploring gender affirming surgeries, whether that's chest masculinizing surgery or something else, we, we can help get them in touch through individuals through our transgender health program to help facilitate that type of procedure. So I kind of look at gender affirming care as, as a spectrum. Not every gender diverse individual is going to want any of those interventions. Many will though. Um, puberty blockers are usually used around the age of 12 or 10 or stage two or three. Gender affirming hormones more so around the age of 16 and gender affirming surgical interventions closer to the age of adulthood or 18. Um, and because our audience is mainly medical providers, you want to go over like a bit more specifically what exactly you prescribe as the puberty blocker and what, you know, not the doses, but what the medications are and for the um, gender affirming hormones. Yeah. So puberty blockers include GNRH analogs that we've used historically for treatment of precocious puberty. Um, these are medications like Lupron or Eligard, or, which are injections. Um, there are implantable rods that we use a lot, um, like Ciprelin. Um, and basically, they function as a pause button. Um, you know, they prevent any further progression of unwanted puberty. That holds value in that they prevent any unwanted secondary sex characteristics from developing. For a trans guy, that can mean um, preventing any breast development, for example, and that would um, re reduce the need for any surgical interventions down the road. Um, they're 100% reversible, like I was saying. Should a person ever decide that they don't want to, want to proceed down that route of care, or if their goals of care change, or if their gender identity changes, um, we can always stop the medication and natal puberty would progress. Um, and I think sorry to interrupt, but I feel like that's a super important point to emphasize is that there 
a pause button, not a stop button. Cause I think a lot of parents are like, Oh my God, my kid's never going to go through puberty. Uh, what does that mean? But that you said it can be restarted and go on its natural progression if desired. Absolutely. Um, and then gender affirming hormones, you know, for trans guys, that's usually testosterone treatment in the form of topical applications or injectable applications. Um, you know, our goal is we, we would want an individual to experience um, a male puberty equivalent to that of their peers. Um, for trans feminine individuals, we're talking about two different types of medications usually in order to help with that feminizing process. Typically we need medications to act as an androgen blockade or a testosterone action blockers and then estradiol, which facilitates that feminization process. So, you know, there's a lot of ins and outs that go into these decisions. Um, you know, family support's very important. We follow the guidelines proposed by World Professional Association for Transgender Health and the Endocrine Society of America. Um, we wanna make sure a person is physically healthy and that any behavioral health concerns are under reasonable control prior to starting these medicines. Um, so it's not like you come to our clinic and you leave with a prescription for hormones. Our first appointment is usually getting to know your kid and getting to know you as a family and establishing what your goals of care are and seeing how best we can facilitate those goals of care. There are some families who are never going to be okay with putting their child on gender affirming hormones. Well, if that's the case, maybe our focus needs to shift a little bit then. And maybe we can support your child by helping with therapeutic amenorrhea or suppressing menses. Maybe our focus needs to be making sure that we're supporting their mental health um, until they are at an age where they can make that decision for themselves. Um, so, you know, th this isn't like black and white medicine. And I think for a lot of providers, that can be uncomfortable for a lot of providers that can be um, a little comfortable. Um, you know, everyone's gender journey is different and our job is, is a support clinic to make sure we're meeting those goals of care and that we can, we can help the individual through this process. Yeah, one of my patients who's a trans male, he's now 15, his family refuses to do any anything. He has an IUD, but that's about it. And he definitely has mental health concerns. And as a provider, it's really frustrating for me to still have like a therapeutic relationship with the parents, because I honestly, I feel like they're causing their child harm. Um, and he's just basically waiting until he turns 18 and can make his own decisions. But at that point, like, you know, he's basically through puberty now. So a lot of that you can't go back on other than you know, hormones and their surgery and stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm wondering, is that pretty common in your clinic where the parents are at pretty different places than the kids or? Yeah, really not? yeah we definitely see that a lot. And, and, you know, there are various degrees of support from parents. There are parents who, you know, have read the literature and know that the outcomes can be pretty scary, whether it's significant depression, whether it's suicidal ideation or completion of suicide, all of that is well documented in the literature for individuals who do not get gender affirming support or gender affirming care. Um, 
and a lot of those parents are very, um, you know, they're very supportive of helping facilitate this process for their child. There are a lot who, you know, don't recognize this as a need, see this as a phase. A lot of parents are looking for another diagnosis to explain a person's gender identity, whether it's autism spectrum disorder or something else. And, you know, there are plenty of individuals with autism spectrum disorder who are gender diverse. It doesn't change how we address those individuals' needs necessarily. Um, so, uh, you know, with part of what we do as pediatricians is support families. And the best way we can do that is through education and primary prevention. And a lot of times that's what my first, second, sometimes third appointment is with the family is just to, you know, educate and, and let them know what, what's available for their child and, um, you know, reassess where they are with their child on this journey. Lucy, your daughter is super lucky to have you as a mom and be so supportive already at this at this age. Well, thanks. We're trying our best, learning along the way. Um, Lucy, do you want to talk about your advocacy work with the bills that were up at the Utah State Legislature this year that luckily got defeated? Sure. I was lucky enough to work with Equality Utah, actually, this legislative session, um, because there were two bills that came up in the Utah up this session that were also being posed multiple states across the nation. A lot of them were um, supported by an organization called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a which has been designated a hate group actually and is a very anti-LGBTQ organization. Um, but the two in Utah was House Bill 92 and House Bill 302 is what it was. House Bill 92, um, now I'm forgetting which one is which, so we have to delete this up. 92 the healthcare one and 302 the sports one or vice versa. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, you had it right. I had it right. Okay, so 92 is the healthcare one. Um, that one uh, was a proposal to uh, make any sort of transgender affirmative therapy illegal. So that included hormone blockers, um, which are totally reversible, in addition to cross hormone therapy um, and then the surgeries for any minors. And so I think as physicians, that's really important because it comes between your patient, physician, patient you know, family physician relationship in that the uh, government would dictate kind of what you could and treatments you could and could not give to your children, even though the treatments are backed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the, the Endocrine Society, multiple international societies, like most of the major medical organizations back this plan and gender affirming care. Um, so luckily it was defeated in Utah, but as you guys know, it was not defeated in Arkansas and Texas. And am I missing any, Adam? I think those are the two biggies that it, they passed in. Yeah, I thought there might've been one more. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head though. Yeah, so in those states they passed. So it is illegal for a physician to prescribe any of those medications or pursue any gender affirming care. And in Texas, they have a particularly cruel addition to that bill in that they would consider it child abuse if you did pursue gender affirming care for your child. Um, and that the implication is there that they might be able to take your child away if they deem it child abuse. Um, so that one luckily was defeated. And then 302 was the one banning specifically transgender girls from participating in sports from kindergarten all the way up. Um, it went through multiple kind of changes and amendments and eventually they made it kindergarten through high school and kind of eliminated the college aspect of it. 
but they didn't take into account any of the guidelines put forth by the NCAA, am I getting that right? The National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, um, or the Olympic committees who all have sort of what guidelines that they've been in place for five to 10 years, sort of looking at this question of transgender athletes. And that's what the Utah Athletics Association has been following. That's what all the Utah colleges has been following. And so this was just a blanket ban on any transgender girl, even at age kindergarten from participating in any school sponsored sports. So it just went against any, any guidelines that are out there. You know, and to be fair, it's, a, it's an issue that many people have questions about, many people worry about. Um, the interesting thing in the Utah bill is that it's currently a non-issue. There are zero trans female athletes participating in any sports up to age college right now. So it's, it's a non-issue. And um, I don't think we have any major collegiate athletic athletes as well in the state of Utah. So it's, it's a non-issue that they were trying to make into an issue in addition to not following the guidelines set forth by national and international organizations. Um, yeah. So that one was defeated as well. And Governor Cox came out against both bills or just the second bill? Um, good question. Do you remember Adam? I know he wanted to come out against both, but I think he publicly he came out against one of them, but I'm blanking which one. It was at the sports one, I believe. Okay. I think that's a probably great place to, to stop. Thank you guys for both being on. I think I learned a lot. And like you said, Adam, it's okay to make mistakes with terminology. I think as long as you're trying your best and listening to your patients and respecting their, their wishes and letting them teach you is the most important thing. And as this issue or, you know, evolves more, we'll all learn more. Thanks guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks.